You know why I'm so passionate about Music to Code By? Because it works. I'm still getting a steady stream of success stories from developers just like you who sail effortlessly through hours of coding. There's only one problem. They can't get enough. Well, not only are we up to track 13, but you can download them all in one shot for a new low price. The collection was 54 bucks just a little while ago, still only a little more than four bucks a track, but now you can get all 13 for only 39 bucks. That's only three bucks a track. Yeah, that's more like it. 325 minutes of pure bliss. Go get it now at collection.musictocodeby.net. .NET Rocks, episode 1372, with guest Matthew Robbins. Recorded Thursday, October 13th, 2016. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, we're here for some Xamarin goodness. Yeah, how you doing, my friend? I am well. How are you? Good. I've been I've been actually doing a lot of Xamarin lately, so this is going to be a, a an interesting talk. Um, had that uh, session at Dev Intersection. Yeah. Which, as of this recording, I have not had yet, but as right. of its publication, I have. Let's just say it went well. I hope it went well. I think it went great. I think it went great. I too. think it killed it. Probably right. <laughs> In less speculative news, I finally got that 43-inch 4K monitor all set up. Oh, I thought it was set up. Yeah. I, I It's been set up for a while, but I finally, I did it, you know, the big claim to fame on that monitor, hey, 4K is awesome, Kerbal on 4K, amazing. Yeah. But I finally done all the experiments with the four input mode. Oh, right. Because right, that was sort of his claim to fame is you can divvy it up into four 1080p screens. Right. It's not as easy as you'd hope. Oh, um, problem number one is your 4K setting, like the whatever computer. So the whole idea here is I want to plug different computers into the different input modes, right? Sure. And then be able to flip between a 4K view for my big machine and then into a, a multiple 1080p view of other machines. However, whatever was plugged into the 4K port that's plugged into the display port is always going to be on the screen in the, in the divvied up mode, which means you're basically suddenly telling that computer you're now 1080p. So it smashes up all your windows or it crushes them all together to fit in there. Mm. And, uh, and then you don't have four HDMI inputs. You have two HDMI inputs, a VGA input and a mini DP input. So you actually need, if you're going to reuse all four of them, one of them is always going to be the original machine. And then you've got to get the right mix of cables, whatever you need to be able to power the other three images that you're going to be able to put up there. Wow. So it's, it's got a little bit of complexity, but you know, the main thing I want to use it for is when we're using Skype to record, like on run as radio and stuff for me mm -hmm. to have two separate latte pandas, both with HDMI on two separate windows on this screen so that I can set up the Skype uh, in isolation, then going through my traveler to do recording in isolation. Yeah. And then flip it back to the big screen and be able to keep going. Love it, man. Yeah. So it's, it's working, but not as simple as you'd hope. 
Yeah. Well, it's always disappointing when you, you think it's going to work X and it works Y. Right. The one thing that is nice is there's four little buttons on the screen uh, for navigating the menus, and the menus are a pain in the butt that way. But once you've got everything configured the way you want to, you can actually pre-program some of those buttons to go to the modes you want. So I have a button for just give me the big screen and a button for, okay, split up into the four screens. So it's easy to flip between them. But it it was fussy to get to that point. Wow. All right. That's but it can good. be done. And 43-inch display is really, really big. Really big. <laughs> really big. <laughs> cool. Going to have to check it out when I come visit you. You bet. All right. Well, let's roll that crazy music because I got something apropos for a better Noah framework today. All right, dude, what do you got? All right. Well, James Montemagno mentioned this on the last show that we did with him. Mm-hmm. Um, but I went looking around, some did some spelunking, and uh, actually kicked the tires on this stuff. And uh, it's still October as of this recording, October 13th. So I've been doing it now for quite a while. Uh, if you go to, what is this, 1372.pwop.me, that brings mm-hmm. you to the Xamarin Components page on GitHub. Yes. And these are plugins. They're open source. And a lot of them work with Xamarin Forms. And uh, I just started poking around here. And here's the idea that you can use the native dependency object to get um, native code that does stuff like, you know, access the file system, the compass, or the geolocating or anything like that. Um, Accelerometer, gyroscope, magnetometer, compass, that kind of stuff. Yep. Or... You can use these. And what these plugins do is uh, let you just write the code once in your shared or PCL project. And it just works on all of these devices. Oh, interesting. So these are abstractions yeah. when you go across device. And I see a bunch of them written by Mr. Montemagno, too. Yeah, James wrote a bunch of them. So um, the ones that I've tried out so far, and I just started messing around with them today, are device motion which uh, provides access to the accelerometer, gyroscope, magnetometer, and compass. I also checked out the geolocator, and that's James. Uh, He wrote that. Right. And, you know, basically, it's just a couple of lines of code that you put in your PCL. You have to use NuGet to add a reference to the uh, project in every single uh, one of your platform projects. But when you do that, it's just a couple of lines of code, and boom, it works. And, man, I'll tell you it saves a lot of time. That's awesome, man. It, and it's just, yeah, anytime I could get stuff that I know is going to run across all the platforms, because that's what it was built for, I just I get that percentage higher and higher in a mobile app of only had to be right once runs on everything. That's pretty exciting. Yeah, it is very exciting. So uh, if you haven't checked that out and you're doing Xamarin development, um, do so. Check it out. As I said before, 1372.pwop.me. Awesome. Who's talking to us, my friend? We grabbed a comment off of show 1309, the one we did back in June of 2016, talking to Greg Shackles about instrumenting mobile apps. Yeah. Uh, and I've actually, there's been a bunch of comments on them, and I've sent mugs to a bunch of people over them. But this is a comment from someone you might know about a comment that somebody else made that I've already sent a mug to. This is a comment from Joel Hewlin. Oh, yeah. 
uh, who we were, you know, in that conversation, we were talking about being able to instrument apps to the point where, you know, they've failed the moment they failed. Right. So that you can actually respond immediately. And, mm. and we got to that sort of big brother discussion of, you know, you're starting to call your customer and go say, I see you're having a problem with my app. And they're like, how do you know that you're <sighs> creeping me out? Right. Right. And, and Joel made this very valid point. He said, this is actually a controversial way to proactively assist your users. However, it does depend on your user base. If you're talking mm. about consumers who purchase your home automation product, for example, then absolutely an unsolicited call from your support team where you sense a problem with their device would instantly put them in defensive mode and cause them to question your invasion of their privacy. Uh, However, I have taken this exact same approach within the corporate environment where our users are domain users and it's expected that IT is monitoring their activities. And my experience with proactively calling these users as soon as I noticed errors being logged as a result of their actions was that they were actually a bit taken aback, but pleasantly surprised. Hmm. I mean, and I have this experience too. Like, I, as a, someone who travels as much as I do, I routinely get calls from my credit card company saying, "Hey, are you actually in right. Amsterdam?" Right? Yeah, like, yeah, I am. It's like, oh, we're just checking because there's been charges there. I'm like, it's good. And, you know, thanks very much. Like, while it's kind of creepy, you know, you could take it as creepy that uh, okay, you've been watching my transactions. It's also they're making sure my card's not stolen. Right. You know, That's a good thing. Yeah. So, you know, while you're a little surprised, you're also grateful. Like, it's pleasantly surprised. They could automate that, too. You know, if they see the, a transaction you know, a thousand miles away from where you were just a couple hours ago, they could uh, deny it and then send you a text that says, hey, you know, somebody's trying to buy a Starbucks in Lithuania. Was that you? Yes or no? Right. They, it would be cool to actually do that text message. And I, I like that currently they, they don't deny my transaction. They just ask. Yeah. And then, and then after that, you know, might, something might go on. Cause I have had the experience of charging something in an airport in, in, you know, the East Coast, then flying to Chicago, charging something on my credit card again, and then flying to Vancouver, charging again. And the credit card company calling me going, how fast are you moving? I'm about as fast as an airplane can move. Actually, it could be even better than that. It could just be an app from your credit card company installed on your phone, and it just follows you around. And so <laughs> now they know where you are. Yeah. I wouldn't care. Who cares? I'm with you. But I think the transaction mapping is sufficient. Uh, either way, Joel comes down to saying it's demonstrated that they are important to us and that we've got their back. And he's talking about your IT folks, right? Your, your tech support folks. It's like, hey, we're here to help to the point where we're calling you to help you. Yeah. It showed that we care deeply about our work and the quality of the products that we build. And in this environment, this level of proactive user engagement is not only appropriate, but it's welcomed with great enthusiasm. Yeah. Yeah. I think you got to, it matters the scenario you're in. But ultimately, you know, people are looking for good service, and this is a, a really high-end level of service. Uh, so, Joel, thank you so much for your comment, and thank you so much for the all the great work you've done with us, man. Yeah. Uh, a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you, and if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on any of our social media, because we publish every show to Google Plus and Facebook, and if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. We forward him to Joel Heelan. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's uh, introduce Matthew. Matthew Robbins has been neck deep in the Xamarin ecosystem since 2013 and is currently making beautiful recruitment software for Job Adder. Having shipped multiple apps built on Xamarin, he now builds MFractor. 
that's M-F-R-A-C-T-O-R, a productivity tool for Xamarin Forms, enabling developers to build their apps faster. I can't wait to hear about it. Welcome, Matthew. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Great to have you. You're in Sydney, right? I am in Sydney, half a world away from you guys. Skype's behaving pretty well today. It is. Don't jinx it. <laughs> we'll hope it stays that way. <laughs> you know, the editors take care of all this stuff. The listeners have no idea what happens to us with Skype. I mean, yeah. we occasionally have to stop and start three or four times. Yeah, Skype sometimes can be hateful. It's true. Yeah. But we'll uh, let us, uh, you know, pray to the good Skype gods today and we'll get through this. Well, you and I were talking uh, just a few minutes ago, Matthew, before we started about my experiences with Xamarin Forms and, and Xamarin in Visual Studio. And you can definitely feel the retrofittiness of it, you know? Yes. You can You can sort of feel how Visual Studio and Xamarin are trying to get along, but... Uh, since Xamarin, you know, is, is sort of an add-on to Visual Studio using the Visual Studio extensibility model, um, then, you know, sometimes it's a little bit tweaky. But I have never used uh, Xamarin Studio before, really. I mean, I've kicked the tires a little bit, but I haven't, uh, haven't really used it for a project. So it's going to be interesting to hear about your product, which is for Xamarin Studio, is it not? That's correct. It's for Xamarin Studio. So, what does it do? Uh, high level, it does XAML code analysis. Uh, and stemming from that, it will also do a lot of C-sharp code generation for you as well. Hmm. Wow, okay. And then uh, there's a couple other things for navigation and some general utilities too, right? Yeah, so linking up your, the symbols in, in XAML to their .NET counterpart so you can jump to them. Um, just simple stuff like jumping from a, a XAML code file to a, its code behind class or a view model if I can figure it out. Yeah. Uh, IntelliSense, that's something that we sort of miss right now anyway with uh, the current version of Xamarin Forms in Visual Studio. Yeah. So is that, IntelliSense is supported out of the box by Xamarin Studio by itself. So fortunately, I've had no, no need to add that. However, Mfractor does add uh, Android Resource IntelliSense um, for Android apps. And Android Resource IntelliSense means, what What does that mean exactly? Oh, so if you were writing a Xamarin native Android application and you needed to build some string definitions, for instance, you would make a new file called strings.xml and that's basically a fancy XML document. Well, it's an XML document. Yeah that would contain a resources top-level element. And within that, you would nest some XML tags, string, name, equals value. So mFractor will uh, do auto-completion on all that, which isn't available out of the box. Oh, I see. Good deal. And so let's, let's start with code analysis. Um, the docs say that there's a suite of analysis tooling that verifies correctness of C-sharp and, and XML code and notifies the developer of issues? Yeah, so one of the first checks is, does a symbol exist? So if you're ref referencing a control, um, it will associate that with a .NET symbol and just make sure that it matches up. If it kind of looks like it matches up, but you've misspelt it incorrectly, it, it'll still resolve it, um, but it'll give you a prompt to autocorrect it uh, to what it thinks it should be. And that's, that's fairly common if you've 
just like just like misspells a um a letter or you know, some capitalizations off. And it seems like there's just a slew of really cool features that uh, by themselves are kind of small and specific, but together make the experience a lot better. Like, like you can verify that a toast has been shown, for example. Yeah. So that's something that's just so easy to do. You'll do toast.makeText and then you just won't add the dot show on the end. You just forget about it. Yeah. So. Yeah, that that was one of the first analyzers that I wrote when I was getting into Roslyn because I'm just like, oh, this is kicking my ass. Like, I, I I just can't believe that I've I've walked through all these steps. I've I've built my app. I've walked through six screens, mm. and then it crashes with this just silly exception. Right. Like, or it just doesn't it just doesn't show. So part of what Enfractor has been trying to solve is that that burden where you you develop and develop and develop. And problems that we can usually usually see at design time, like we can trivially like analyze this stuff. Uh, we have to wait, wait till runtime and, and spend two minutes walking to a screen before it firebombs on us. And I just find that tremendously frustrating. Yeah. And they're not good error messages. Like you just, it just fails and you just sort of got to hack your way through it. Yeah. It's just painful. So uh, if you're doing XAML, like uh, Xamarin Forms, they typically do what's called inflated XAML. Right. So when a screen uh, gets created, um, all your issues uh, they come to surface when the inflation happens. So they, they they take your XML document and they expand it out and use reflection to make all your view hierarchy. Hmm. Uh, and that generates really obtuse errors. So if you have a, yes. a a bad a bad binding expression, for instance. Um, that's just a nightmare to, to, to figure out where it is. So if we can just inspect that at design time, uh, it, it just saves minutes and minutes of developer time. As it turns out, it's kind of difficult to debug binding expressions in WPF where XAML was created for f the first time. I mean, binding is typically difficult to debug you really have to know those statements and that syntax. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's definitely a tricky uh, area. Yeah. You, you know, Richard's right that the whole Xamarin Forms experience tacks on a lot of high-level stuff so that when you have, in Visual Studio anyway, when you have problems or bugs, usually the error message isn't all that helpful. Or if it is, it's three or four levels down from the original error. And could, you know, be so generic, like, this is one that I told um, James Montemagno about that, that I get once in a while if there's just any kind of problem that prevents anything from compiling is, is just, you know, initialized component will have a squiggle under it. <laughs> and it'll just say, yeah. cannot find initialized component. What? What do you mean you can't find initialized component? Well, it's because there was some obscure bug that you really can't figure out down, way down in the stack. And uh, that's how it ends. That's what you get. Yeah. Well, and even the example you show on the website with fixing the XML, right? Adding in the, the uh, XML namespace specification. You don't get an error there. You get an error when you try and invoke that, uh, that object. And it, and it says, I can't find it. And you're like, it's in the entry there because you forgot the namespace. Hmm. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. I mean, Xamarin they have 
to their credit, they have uh, made steps to mitigate this problem by doing compiled XAML. So they'll, they'll go through at build time and convert your XML into uh, basically C sharp that is compiled. Um, so errors that wouldn't be apparent uh, until runtime now cause a, comp- a compilation error. So that's a great step forward. Yeah. Um, but it's still a post build error. We can, we can definitely improve that process by making it a design time error. Yeah, that's true. Man, it'd be nice to have some of this stuff in Visual Studio too. <laughs> Convince me to use Xamarin Studio for Xamarin Forms. I guess I don't get universal windows, right? If I'm on the Mac. Uh, no, no. Personally, I find the friction in Xamarin development is considerably less if you're using Xamarin Studio. Um, Visual Studio is just this massive bulky beast. And I think a lot of people have arrived at that opinion as well. Mm. Xamarin Studio is really quite this lean down, uh, streamlined IDE that's specific for mobile development. They are expanding it out to like doing, adding some ASP support, but predominantly the, the vision from the start, from what I can understand and my experiences are, uh, Xamarin Studio is really optimized around like, well, how do we make mobile apps easier to build? Yeah. Um, and just one of the simple things for here is you're, if you're doing iOS apps, and that's one half of the beast, right? I mean, you have Android and iOS, um, and Windows Phone and, and UWPs. If you're doing mobile apps, maybe not, uh, not your important. first priority. No. Yeah. So just being able to develop on a Mac. In .NET, that's mm. a, a massive advantage. You don't have the the turnaround of you know I have to connect to a simulator across the network. It's, sure, it, it's there local uh, on your desk. Yeah, I mean the only problem I have with the simulator on the Mac is you don't have touch. That's correct. And I thought that was a cool trick they showed at Build with the iPhone. I don't know what you call it. That's running on Windows that actually pokes through to the Mac. Because it's still actually running on the Mac, but then allows you to do touch on a on a touch screen on your Windows device. They call it the iPhone simulator for Windows. Right. But it's still running on the Mac, actually. Yeah. Like they haven't actually changed that. But at least it gives you touch. What did Miguel call it? Stop turning around in your chair. Yeah. Right? No more swivel right. chairs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I hadn't heard that one. Yeah. It makes total sense to me that you're constantly flipping back and forth between your dev machine and your simulator machine, your Mac, because you you know you've got to play with it, and then and then you don't have touch, which I think is really annoying, right? You want to test a gesture, you've got to deploy it to the phone to test it without that. Yep. All right, let's talk about some code generation features here. Yeah. Um, so one of the first code generation features that I wrote because it was driving me absolutely crazy. Uh, was generating uh, properties from binding expressions. So you have a view model. Oh, yeah. Um, and you want to bind, say, to my color. Right. Um, to control a text color. Yeah. Typically, you'd go from your view model, you write that property out, and then you'd go back into your XAML code file and, and then bind it in. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to inverse that, that process. So I, I say I want to bind against my color and then I can just go right click, generate that property for me. So it just cuts out 
know, oh. maybe half, half a dozen lines of code. So hmm. you're, you're editing the view and you say, I want to bind this field to a property on the view model called foo. And it just goes and creates that property handler. Yeah. So it can do it with or without uh, backing fields. Yeah. So if you have some some backing logic that you'd like like to implement, backing fields are great. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you just want the notified property change and you're using Foddy, um, then you just use a usual. You just do a usual get and set. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that works great. Yeah, I mean, I use it every day, and it, it feels almost like I'm cheating at my job. Like <laughs> 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 it just it just takes so much of the friction out of development. And auto-completion on the XAML side? Uh, yeah, so that's out of the box in Xamarin. So, thankfully, I don't okay. have to write that myself. All right. Yeah, this just seems like stuff that ought to exist. I'm glad you're doing it because it's just, you know, this is – it's really plumbing code. It's the same every time. Yeah, it's a it's boilerplate. I mean, mm. it, it's just code that we don't – we shouldn't have to write. We know what we want. I can we, – we can infer all the type information um, – through like the, the expressions and stuff. So right. why the heck don't we generate it? Yeah, because this is the complaint with XAML, is XAML, I think, is when you really look at it, so much of it is ceremonial code and, uh, yeah, and, and these kind of boilerplate over and over and over again. It almost, it almost begs it for a designer. Did I say that out loud? That's not right. <laughs> I, I totally prefer the the XAML text designer experience to uh, any kind of visual designer. Sure. Yeah. I just, uh, you know, I gave up on that fantasy a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you, buddy. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I find that I always fall back into an XML editor if I'm building views. Right. I mean, the the designers for Android and iOS, they're, they're quite good. Well, you can't escape the iOS designer. Um but for Android, I I very rarely use the builder, the designer. I will do it all by hand. I just find it way quicker. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. And it is something you do get good at. And it's just interesting that we've, we've done a bunch of shows now around, how do I get around this cycle of write some code, look at the results when dealing with mobile apps that are having to show up, you know, on three devices? It's, it's, it's hard and it's no, it's, it's not just hard because it's three devices. It's hard because the device is different from the thing you're building on. Yeah. Um, one of the new features that came out in Xamarin Studio 6.1, they added a previewer. So it's not a designer. Um, it's a previewer. So right. they will render out your UIs as you're hmm. building them. As you're building them. Yeah. That's yeah. nice. Yeah. So you have your text editor open on one side and you're hacking away your XAML. And then on the other side, you have a previewer that will present what you're building. And, you know, if you've done any WPF, you get used to that and you miss it. Yeah, I guess as a Xamarin developer, I don't have that that perspective. So when these new features come out, I'm like almost fall off my chair. I'm right. Like, Holy hell, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was um, Rocky Locke's line so long ago, right? I think he was even talking about Silverlight at the time. It's just that. It's it's okay for web web developers are comfortable with bad tools because we've never had good tools. So we don't know better. <laughs> it's true. And, and, <laughs> and so, you know, stuff that was missed from one development environment, it's introduced to another development environment. It's never even close and it's miraculous. Yeah. Well, Richard, guess what time it is now? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yeah. 
It's time to design a designer designer for the XAML code designer. Do I have to be a designer to design a designer designer? (laughs) (laughs) I think I ought to go to designer design school. Nice. (laughs) It's actually time to give away an Infragistics Ultimate to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, let me tell you about Ignite UI. Ignite UI is the complete HTML and JavaScript toolkit to build modern browser experiences on any device, desktop, tablet, or phone. Designed for the enterprise, you'll create high-performance, touch-first, responsive apps with Angular JS directives, bootstrap support, and Microsoft MVC server-side widgets. More at igniteui.netrocks.com. Well, all right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is David R. Kirkland. Congratulations, David. Congratulations, David R. Golf clap for you, sir. Yes, sir. And uh, David just won the Infragistics Ultimate. That's a big pile of awesome from our friends at Infragistics. And if you don't know what we just did here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one, <laughs> to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you have to sign up to win. And we'd like to ask our guests, if you had $5,000, Matthew, to spend on technology today, what would you buy? That's a good question because I think five thousand US is like a hundred thousand Australian. Yeah, hundred forty. <laughs> Probably a house. I don't think that's true. <laughs> and not, it may not be true, but it's funny. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think the first thing I'd get, and this pretty much covers the whole five grand, is a new MacBook. I'd just spec the whole thing up and just go crazy. Yeah, oh, I think yeah. it's like four four grand. Just yeah, it's about five. Like, now, a yep. fully loaded Mac with all the toys, a MacBook Pro, you can blow five grand out of the water. Yeah, you can. You can go beyond it. Easy. Oh, yeah. You can not, not even a substantial down payment. <laughs> it's, no. The, the, I've, I've, one thing Apple's always been good at is taking our money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've been on the same MacBook for about five years now, so it's, it's getting to time for an upgrade. So that would be, be perfect. For sure. Yeah. The question is, do you actually need is a laptop or would you rather get one of the big iMacs? Well, I get a laptop, see, because my job at JobAdder, they let me digital nomad when I would like to, which is quite a lot. So I don't like being tied to a desk. Yeah. Sure. So what are some of the Xamarin Forms specific features that we can talk about in MFractor? Yeah. Um, first thing would be the XAML analysis. So... Mfractor loads up when you open a XAML document. Mm-hmm. It symbolicates using Roslyn uh, your XAML code file. Okay. And then it just it runs about 40 code checks at the moment. Wow. Just making making sure things like binding expressions resolve, Man. things are spelt spelt correctly. Are you providing types to generics? If you uh, element doesn't resolve, can we import that as an XML namespace? So mm-hmm. there's there's quite a few really, really handy ch- uh, handy checks that we're doing. Yeah, and we did talk about some XAML tools already. Uh, tool tips. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not sure if we talked about that. Yeah, uh, that's something I've just taken for granted now. Um, <laughs> yeah, one of the, one of the first things that was added uh, that I added were XAML tool tips. So you hover over an element, 
and the same .NET tooltip that you would see uh, in C Sharp code that will get rendered over XAML. Uh, and if that is a binding expression, it will try to resolve what it thinks the binding context will be. Mm. So it'll do that with some like some name inference, or if you've explicitly set the binding context elsewhere, it'll use that. Um, and then it will show you what the type that it's binding against is. Mm. As well as say, hey, you can actually jump to the symbol if you'd like. And that right. really, that takes out a lot of friction in uh, navigation. And you can also jump to a view model or a code behind class or other. Otherwise, if you're in the code, you can jump to the XAML view, right? Yeah. So, if you have a, a view model, if it can infer, if you're using standard naming conventions and it can infer what it thinks the code behind and the XAML code file is, uh, it'll add a right-click context menu to say, just jump to the the XAML or the code behind class. And it does that for the from the XAML to code behind and view view model and the code behind to the XAML and the view model as, as well. Okay. You mentioned FODI in the midst of all this as oh, part yeah. of your, your tool suite. Should we just spend a little time on it? Because it's one of those things where, like, if you haven't run into this, you're missing out. Oh, uh, I um I think I have a small crush on Fody. <laughs> uh, Fody was one of the uh, better know framework tools that I mentioned a while ago, but uh, yeah, it's worth talking about. It's great stuff. Yeah, so they um they basically reweave your assembly uh, after it's been built. Um, so you would and add code for you. So you annotate. A class with, uh, for instance, well, what's commonly used with Xamarin Forms land is um, implement property changed. Mm -hmm. uh, it'll add an inheritance from I notify property changed that interface. Um, it'll implement I notify property changed, and then for every property that has a public getter and a public setter, uh, it will do notify property changed events for that for you. So you don't have to write any of that boilerplate code. So it's another one of those things that just saves you so much work. Yeah. Sure. So if you're not using it, you're just downright insane, I think. <laughs> yeah, and again, if there's any overarching message on all this, it's like, how do I shorten up the cycle to building mobile apps? So I'd, that's why I brought it up. It's like MFractor, obviously, you know, yeah, you're going to save me a lot of pain. Fody, just time, less time doing these things. So it's not you're not scattering it throughout your code. And that previewer, and these are all links I've grabbed for the show notes. It's like these are all ways for us to make it easier to see how our app's progressing as we're going through that iterative coding cycle. Yeah, and I guess at the end of the day, what we're doing as mobile developers, we're delivering a product to an end user. So we want that that process to be as easy as possible. Because I mean, God knows that. My development in itself is is hard anyway. So why don't we just alleviate pain points where we can? Just yeah. make things easier for ourselves. Do you spend much time in UWP with this stuff at all? I don't. So the company that I work for, JobAdder, we don't have a UWP app. Right. Um, and a, a lot of my peers in the industry, they're not really actively developing for UWP. Right. So I haven't. I haven't looked at really supporting that just yet mm. no demand well yeah i mean i, I kind of i kind of, i'm kind of building this for my peers essentially so yeah. if they're not using it and they're not going to gain a net benefit from it um it's, it's kind of hard for me to justify doing the effort just at the moment right mm -hmm. But you do, the the app you are building uh it, it is a xamarin app for iphone and, and android 
That is correct. And how, how what's your percentage code base do you feel like? Like how much Android and iOS specific code are you writing? Uh I would say that it's maybe at most 15 to 20%. Right. Hmm. And it could be significantly less. I have a, an aversion to pulling in third-party plugins and dependencies. Right. Um, okay. Just because I've, I've been stung by uh, people not supporting uh, packages uh, before. Do you write your own, though? I mean, that's a, a question because that could really help if, you've, if you, you know, download these things and you have the code and tweak them yourself. Yeah. I mean, so... Where I can, I, I would rather pull in the, the, the raw source code than use the package um, just because I find that packages can hold hold down. Uh, like, for instance, the Android API level, you end up with these all kinds of interdependencies. And if you have the wrong packages installed, it, it causes you to be yeah. uh, impossible to upgrade, basically. Yeah, I've been stung there as well. Yeah, so I, I really try to minimize the and specifically Android what we pull what we pull in because it adds some technical constraints um, and prevents us from moving fast and we like moving fast. Yeah, yeah. So we're looking at maybe fifteen to twenty percent code within uh, your iOS and Android projects. We could definitely reduce that mm. um, by using plugins, but we choose not to. Is most of the pain from this not when your OS gets updated? Like, is that your big scramble to update the app for the new version of the OS and make everything work? Uh, yes, that's one of them. Um, so, for instance, iOS 10 and Android N comes out. You'll have a like a, a major version upgrade that you'll have to go through. So, Xamarin Forms will bump itself up to support iOS 10 and Android N. Uh, in turn, there'll also be a lot of third-party packages that would also need to bump themselves up. Right. Yeah, and sometimes those packages will be late, late to the game in upgrading themselves to support that. So you, they, they lock down Xamarin Forms and lock you completely down from, from upgrading and supporting that. Mm -hmm. So you obviously like C Sharp and you like Xamarin Forms, um, but I can tell that you also know something about the platforms, the iOS and Android platforms. How much knowledge do you think is necessary of those underlying architectures and um, specifically the APIs in order to really be a successful Xamarin Forms developer? If you're just getting started in Xamarin Forms, I would say that minimal is needed. Xamarin Forms does a very, very good job of abstracting that all away. So you can just get started building out, building your app. So adding pages and view models and just the app will just work. It's, it's fantastic, really. That said, as soon as you start getting into, uh, long running applications, so apps that don't need to last like a user session of a couple of minutes, um, or complex applications that would need things like video streaming or like custom charting controls. Uh, yes, then, then you will start to need a more advanced knowledge, particularly on Android and the lifecycle quirks that are involved in Android applications. Yeah. I was just going to mention the lifecycle stuff. You, you, for example, if you don't know what an activity is and how long it sticks around and you, mm. you may actually end up uh, having some variables go out of scope if they're not class level. Yeah. 
And if you don't realize the constraints with an activity, it's very tempting to go, hey, I've got this this activity object that I can use to grab whatever I want, be right. it like system management classes. Let's just chuck that thing in a static variable and we'll just use that wherever we want. <laughs> um, it, it's very tempting to do that when you don't have a proper understanding of the ecosystem. Um, and there's a huge problem in that, in that you've just made a five megabyte memory leak. Yeah, that's going to be great on a phone. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, we don't worry that much. Memory leaks are relatively rare these days. And certainly when you're talking about your average server, it's just not the same amount of issue. But yeah, we just throw some more servers at it. That's right. <laughs> but, you know, you can't throw more phone at it. We that's have to right. be well behaved. No, I mean, that memory leak might be enough to put the Note 7 into meltdown. So, who knows? Ah, <laughs> you caused a fire with your software. <laughs> Yep. They're not allowing people to fly with those things now. No, they're just simply, right. it's over. And Samsung's not making any more because the replacement ones caught fire too. Like it's oh. over, over. They're not letting anything. They're saying, turn it off. Don't touch it. <laughs> take it. We'll take it back. It, they've, they've taken like a two and a half billion dollar write down over this phone. So where, have, where can we find resources into that critical architectural guidance for uh, iOS and Android, you know, so that we can avoid things like memory leaks and system-wide failures and uh, we can produce well-behaved, long-running apps? Uh, good question. The Xamarin website, they generally have quite good documentation on all this stuff. So, for each section, for Android, iOS, Xamarin Forms, what have you, they'll have an advanced section. And there's some fascinating information in there on, on how they've implemented their architecture um, and how to best manage that alongside the constraints of Android or iOS. So that would be the first place that I would start. Um, otherwise, there's some really good answers on Stack Overflow once you kind of start running into these issues Yeah, that, that uh, provide solutions in managing this stuff. Hmm. Well, ask John Skeet. <laughs> he'll know yeah just yeah john skeet knows he'll always know <laughs> that's my next t-shirt john skeet knows nice <laughs> i feel like that would be a great hashtag it would be yes we could we could do john skeet knows all day long so what's coming up for <laughs> mfractor what are you working on next uh i'm taking on to doing some xml code generation um so something that i am currently working on uh, is if I can figure out what a value converter, what, what value converter you're trying to use, hmm. um, I'll pull that in as an XML import statement. I'll add it to the resource dictionary for you um, and basically generate quite a lot of XML code for you and make your life a lot easier. Well, I, anytime I don't have to type XML code, I'm happier. Me too. Yeah, I, I would like to generate as much as I possibly can for you. Speaking of that, the current iteration and versioning of Visual Studio and Xamarin requires that every time I create a new Xamarin Forms application, I have to go to the NuGet package manager for the solution and upgrade or update the version of Xamarin Forms because what comes in the box in Visual Studio is one version behind. I have to do that every time. And also, I, have, uh, I, don't, I don't really want to use the Windows Phone and Windows 8.1 templates project templates which are in the solution so i delete those so i have this little ritual that i go through whenever i want to just create a xamarin forms project 
So I looked into today using uh, exporting project templates and then creating a solution template. And uh, I, you know, followed somebody's instructions online to a T and it didn't work. And it just made me want a code generator that I could say, here, here's, you know, make me a copy of this and replace all of the project names with X. Uh, sounds quite handy. Yeah, that kind of XML code generation can be a real time saver when you're dealing with stuff like that. And the support for just just writing XML code, it's not as good no. as .NET code. Yeah. So anything we can do to basically, so you don't have to write XML code. I'd like, like to write. I would none. be very happy. Yeah. Like it just gets me to Friday beers quicker, and <laughs> I think that's just great. <laughs> All right. Well, is there anything that we didn't cover that you want to mention, Matthew, before we sign off? You know, I think we've covered everything pretty well. I'm quite happy. All right. Great. What's the URL so we can check it out? So, the URL is www.mfractor.com. Um, so, that is mfractor spelled M-F-R-A-C-T-O-R. Um, so, head over there. There's some short product demos. Um, there's a download page that you can grab it. Um Otherwise, a very, very easy way to install it is to open up the add-in manager in Xamarin Studio uh, under the gallery and IDE extensions. There's an mfractor.install that will do all the work for you. Nice. Fantastic. Matthew Robbins, thank you very much for spending this time with us. It's been great. Thanks very much for having me. All right. I wish you lots of luck with this. And we'll talk to you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a bands by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a